The head of Tokyo's Olympics organizing committee, Yoshiro Mori, has resigned over sexist remarks he made about women, but it took him exactly a week of time wasting and talking too much, exactly the charge he unfairly leveled against female colleagues before he got the chop. It's another blow to a game's already shrouded in uncertainty and pretty unpopular at home. Next, as the post Brexit flow of goods to the continent from the UK continues to rock the boat, we look at a move from UK fishermen to rebrand their catch for the domestic audience. And we'll finish the week in wintry New York City, where our correspondent is pondering the etiquette of passing people on the pavement or sidewalk as you prefer. Monocle's panel tackle these topics this evening, right here on the late edition. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 12th of February and I'm Josh Fennett. With me today to discuss some of the day's big news stories are Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who joins me here in studio. And from his crime boss, Bond villain lair at the centre of a volcano in the outer London borough of Waltham Forest, it's our head of radio, Tom Edwards. Um, Tom, how are you faring this fine Friday and have any of your children set upon you dressed as ninjas since we last spoke? Uh, not dressed as ninjas, no. They've been on relatively good behaviour. But I, you know, it's 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 the end of a, week, a long week, so I, I, I look a little tired. I've got, a, you know, a face like a grieving cod, which we may come back to later. Um, but yeah, not, not too bad. Hanging in there, Josh. Good. That's great to hear. And Andrew, it's been a busy week here in the office, but you've traded uh, scanning the daily papers and news websites um, for a set of diaries this week. Surely you're not getting nostalgic for 2020 just yet. No, we're, we're making a special uh, episode of The Urbanist. When I say special, it's all about me, really, because I, mean, I, we, I write this column every Saturday and I kind of realised that it hasn't been its main purpose, but it's kind of plotted the twists and turns of COVID in, in, in obscure ways across the year. So I thought maybe we could make a... This little show that's kind of based on those on those entries, and then I suddenly realised it, it needed some facts as well. So I dug out. I keep a diary, so I dug the diary out, and it's uh, it's odd reading it because you know you forget how many things have happened in a year, and how many twists and turns there've been, and also how often <laughs> there's really kind of big global events going on. The things that kind of seem to obsess and worry you are actually quite banal. But anyway, I hope it turns out okay. What can I say? And we're going to start today's show uh, in Japan with a story that broke earlier today. Uh, A week after making sexist remarks about women, blaming them for taking up too much time in meetings, the 83-year-old head of the Tokyo Olympics organising committee, Yoshiro Mori, has at long last and under, it should be said, great pressure from all sides, stepped down from his position. From the Japanese Prime Minister to the International Olympics Committee, no one comes out of this story that favourably. And it's another blow for the Games that's already had to be rescheduled and which isn't looking that popular at home. Let's take a listen to Monocle's Fiona Wilson, our Asia editor, who spoke to us from our bureau in Tokyo a little earlier on The Globalist. Generally, the feeling has been that the the Olympics are happening regardless of what people in Japan think or feel about it or say they feel about it, that it's going to happen even if they don't want it. So there's there's quite a sour feeling um, about the event at the moment. And it's it's spilling into the advertisers um, world now. They they feel they can't really advertise their do their big campaigns because suddenly people don't particularly want to be associated with the Olympics. So it's going to be an epic effort to turn it around. 
Fiona Wilson, Monocle's bureau chief there, speaking to us earlier today on The Globalist on Monocle 24. Andrew, I'll come to you first. Um, what do you make of this long drum roll lead up to the Tokyo Olympics so far? Surely it's not looking like a great exercise in PR and certainly not the exercise in PR people hoped it would be um, if it had gone ahead last summer. Well, I'm a little bit torn, actually, because uh, yeah, I certainly understand the, the reticence of Japanese people to see uh, hundreds, thousands of people rocking up on their shores, even if it's only the athletes and their and their coaches and their teams that are allowed in. You know, it, it certainly has the potential to threaten a kind of a, a health risk to people there by bringing in other strains of the, the virus. And, and we know how many countries are trying to close their borders at the moment. But on the other hand, you know, we, we've gone through a year without any of these huge events. But we've also gone a year without some kind of rallying point that's beyond the world of you know, video conferencing and all that s- stuff is great. Um, I don't know. It's, you do want somewhere where finally people are from around the world get to see each other. And if they can do it in a way that is reasonably secure you you can't guarantee all these things are 100% I'm kind of keen to see something happen in a way I, I don't know that we can keep on delaying every single thing for eternity on the hope that we will stamp out every last vestige of COVID I think that I found this week very sobering in the fact that I, I think there's a realisation this is never going away this is going to be part and parcel of our lives and we have to adapt to it and we have to kind of live with it so in a way, I think, I hope it goes ahead. And Tom, as you'll be well aware, uh, Seiko Hashimoto, the current uh, Olympics minister and a female, is being touted for the top job. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us about some of the runners and riders uh, that would be uh, that are likely to come forward in this and whether the job is uh, a poison chalice for whoever takes it. Well, yeah, I think one of the problems here is you've got, certainly in terms of the, the, the resignation of Mori, you've got to slightly separate that from the what I think Andrew was very accurately reflecting there, which is that people are uncertain domestically as to whether they want this thing to happen on their their doorstep. You know, Mori is a bit of a dinosaur. He's an example of one of those... um, He's a bit of a dinosaur. He's a sort of desiccated old politician. Don't forget, even when he was PM 20-odd years ago, he was constantly uh, making gaffes, uh, saying the wrong thing, putting his foot in it. He, he's he's the kind of part of this old guard of, of, of Japanese politicians. And, you know, he, he, had, sele- he had selected a, a, another administrator, Saburo Kawabuchi, to replace him, 84 years old. You know, I think if they could get a woman in the role, that would be a good uh, gesture. And I just think they need to move forwards. And it's interesting, I, th- I think as usual they were probably galvanized into action or he personally was by the fact that you know like the likes of the head of toyota huge partner of the olympics said look this is bad we're disappointed he was becoming a, a distraction but i don't think it's a a poison chalice to be uh, running the organizing committee and actually i know andrew spoke about this before on this program i actually think these games could end up being quite successful because exactly as andrew said people want something different and i think once it actually happens um, it'll be a, it'll be just the kind of distraction everyone's been looking for. So I, I, I think it's, it will still be a good thing to, to be involved with. Consummate analysis, and I really did try and catch him out with that runners and uh, riders question. But you seem to have, you seem to have uh, got off on the right foot. Well done, Tom. Uh, Andrew, uh, obviously, organising in times of coronavirus is not easy. Notwithstanding the fact that Japan hasn't even started to vaccinate people yet, that program begins to roll out from the end of February. Um, how? Do you think the organising committee can balance um, the needs of the advertisers who know that this is the last roll of the dice with that public 
unpopularity with the fact, as you say, that people will be wary of lots of visitors arriving. Um, could it still be a success? Is is this an opportunity, perhaps, to ignite? I don't know, a little bit of a willingness to rally around the idea that the Olympics has always somehow encompassed the idea of coming together, fair competition, sport, and let's be honest, hundreds of hours of obscure athletes competing in strange sports that you'd never heard of. Well, there's a few things. You know, I don't know that it will go ahead in the way that we we have seen previous Olympics. You know, you're not going to see people packed into stadia, you know, shoulder to shoulder. You're you're going to see really pulled back from that kind of world of you know, huge crowds. But if the athletes get to perform, and many of these sports, you know, of course there are some contact sports, but many of these sports are not particularly involving contact, and I think they can be done in a reasonably safe way. I think it will be okay. And you have to remember that normally in the run-up to the Olympics, the people who are hosting it kind of are so kind of bored of it, and they hate all the kind of all the inconveniences they're put to. That they're they're not that bothered about it anyway. So in London, when we had had, you know, we didn't have COVID, but when we had the Olympics here, people were really miserable about it until just a few weeks before. And then people were like, oh, I don't think I've got a ticket for the, you know, the, the four by four relay. I, I, must, I must go and get my ticket. And then once it began, there was, there was an impetus to it that was, you know, that was extraordinary and people really got involved in it. The thing I come back to is, is what this could be and what I hope it is, is you know, the, it's a little beacon of hope that you know, we have seen over, over the past year opportunity stripped away from a generation that in a way that is going to damage their lives potentially forever and you know that you know, life opportunities missed when you're 16 17 18 19 are very hard ever to put back into place here are these sports people who have trained already for four years for olympics that was delayed so it's five years now this is their this is their moment this is their one chance in life to get that gold medal they they have they have worked their entire youth up to this moment and to take that away would be emblematic of all that's being taken away from everybody around the world. Whereas to give it to them, I think, could be an emblem of like, hold on, hold on. It, it, this may not be your moment to step on, on, onto the pitch or to to rise to the top of the game. But hold on, there are better days coming. And like the athletes, you may get your chance finally to prove your mettle, to go out in the world and, and to... And to take the place that's rightfully yours, because I think if it's it's taken away, that's it's just another awful example of people wasting their lives for something that then they just can never ever get back. And of course, we'll be uh, covering that story from our Tokyo office and its ramifications around the world on Monocle Twenty Four. So do listen out for that. But next up, we're talking about a drive to rebrand British seafood for a domestic audience. Now, for reasons surpassing understanding, one of the major hold-ups in the UK's negotiations with the EU over a post-Brexit trade agreement was fishing, despite it being a relative minnow of an industry within the UK economy as a whole. The UK currently imports 70% of the fish it eats and exports 80% of what it catches, uh, which shows the sort of radical interdependence that's made worse by arbitrarily amputating yourself from your biggest trading partner. But hey-ho, I lost that argument. As such, the Cornish fish producer organisation has made moves to rename two popular exports, the McGrim and the Spider Crab, as the newly redubbed Cornish Sole and Cornish King Crab to try and boost sales. Andrew, does the seemingly haphazard addition of the word Cornish add anything intrinsic to a product? Or is actually that cynicism unwarranted? And is this a good time to think more carefully about celebrating what's caught locally? I think it's 
I think it's a good movie, Shane. It's, you know, it shows the power of good branding because even as you, you wrote this little piece this week about it, an opinion piece for the Monocle Minute and that which we're picking up here, is when I read those names, they just sounded so much more appealing. You know, that, that's the art of you know, writing a menu is, is just using the right words to describe things, to make something enticing. And, you know, who really wants to be a spider crab? Nobody likes spiders anyway. It's got, it's got a horrible kind of, like, image in your mind of hor- horrible legs flying all over the place. Um, back to the uh, Olympics. Um, but <laughs> I think go for it. And I think, you know, people like here in the UK, the Cornwall stands or something. It's, it's interesting because as soon as you say Cornish, you get in, in your mind a, the, the vision of a, a tiny little boat going out into the harbour to kind of catch fish. It might be some giant trawler, God knows, hundreds of miles off the coast dragging the, the bottom of the seabed. But that doesn't matter. It, it's, it Branding works. And if it helps us kind of eat some fish species which are more sustainable, if it helps us kind of uh, spread <laughs> the, the kind of terrible weight on our fish consumption, then go for it. And Tom, it's probably a bit of a drop in the ocean in terms of fixing the overall issue of border checks and paperwork and the problems that the fishing industry um, is facing. But is there a bit of an opportunity as well for British food to do a bit of a rebrand? I personally think that uh, chefs recently have done a very good job of putting local, seasonal, uh, fair, front and centre. But could this be a bit of a moment, should I say, for for British food and for a bit of a rethink? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, there's a whole new attitude towards supply chains, whether you're talking about industry, whether you're talking about food, uh, which I think is is hugely and wholly positive. And I think Britain has an opportunity to do that. And I quite agree with Andrew about this idea of rebranding. There's plenty of things that you know, definitely don't look like they're good to eat and they definitively don't sound that good to eat. But you give them the right name. Um, you know, people aren't going to tuck in willingly to a delicious piece of pancreas, are they? But some tasty sweetbreads, maybe it works. Um, I know, Fennett, you know, you, you, do you, I think you eat Rocky Mountain oysters from time to time. You can you call something a nice enough name and people... Am I supposed to respond but, to that? Is this some, <laughs> is this some sort of uh, implication that I'll find out later after I Google it means something much worse than it sounds? Yeah, Rocky Mountain oysters. Jacques, you of tucking into those every now and again. But my point is, if you give something a sexy name, a few a few suckers will probably eat it. So, but no. But the cynicism about that branding piece aside, um, there's two things I'd say. One, yes, like it's a good opportunity for Britain to to celebrate some of its local ingredients. And then the second thing I would say just about fish. And I don't want to upset people. I know Andrew's a very committed pescatarian and I love fish and their delicious <laughs> oeuvre. But let's be honest, a lot of them are pretty ugly. I mean, people have said about this poor Magrin thing that, oh, oh you know, it's it's basically like a poor man's place. I mean, have you seen a place? That's not an attractive animal either. So I don't think we should get too hung up by how ugly a fish is. Uh, otherwise, we'd never eat any of it. No, it's very true. And actually, Andrew, um, on the subject of rebrands, uh, the people at the Cornish Fish Association are actually going on quite a successful strategy implemented in the late 1990s where they were able to rebrand pilchards. Um, uh, an image in your head is probably bubbling away of a, an oily, slapdash, tomato, horrible fish mess. Um, but that was renamed the, the Cornish Sardine and worked rather well for the sales of that product. But again, this is something that's been dealt with by the by the private sector, by an initiative uh, to, to try and drive sales. Is, should the government be actually doing more to address the problem with the border checks as well? 
Well, perhaps, but I, uh, I, I would, I would hate to see the, this kind of naming convention go in front of a government committee. You'd end up <laughs> with something really kind of like shockingly bad. I did kind of look up before I, I came on to see if there were any other fish that could do with your, with your help. There is a, a fish called a, a spiny lump sucker. <laughs> I think he could do with a bit of a, a naming help. And there's a, a tasseled wobbegong. I wouldn't mind a tasseled wobbegong getting a new name. So I think there's, and there's also a pink fairy armadillo, or a completely different type of creature. But I think all these could do with your 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 marketing help, Josh, and they could have new careers as who who needs a kind of little Shih Tzu in the house when you could have a a pink fairy armadillo just renamed. Tune in next week for all the solutions <laughs> to uh, to those. And uh, finally today, we'll listen to the tireless trudging of our oddball New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan. This week, he's plodding around and pondering the city's unusual pandemic etiquette on the pavements. Take it away, Henry. As soon as I spot the figure coming at me along the sidewalk from the other end of the block, I begin my appraisal. How old are they? Are they visibly impaired in their movements? Or are they using mobility assistance technology? Are they looking after a vulnerable and dependent creature, like a child or a dog? My brain has to process the answers to these questions quickly. Me and the figure are on a rapidly shortening collision course. All the proper information has to be fed into the algorithm. The algorithm that will decide who gets right of way. The stakes are high. A heady cocktail of factors has turned New York City into a treacherous assault course for pedestrians who face obstacles both physical and social. First came the pandemic and the necessity for social distancing. Suddenly, New Yorkers were engaged in a fiendish improvised dance to maintain six feet of distance between one another. It was like a spell had been cast that, overnight, made the sidewalks narrower without physically altering them. The outdoor seating that restaurants set up on the road after indoor dining was banned created new traffic bottlenecks that added to the sense of claustrophobia. Then, at the beginning of February, came the snow. Many sidewalks in my neighbourhood were reduced to narrow footpaths running through valleys of shoveled powder. It's difficult enough to navigate these icy gangways at all, never mind socially distancing while doing so. These constricted passageways mean that when two pedestrians cross each other, one of them has to go into the white stuff for the other to get by. And who goes in depends on the complex interplay of a range of factors. Which brings me back to my current predicament. The figure is closer now. I'm able to make some critical assessments. My opponent is female in appearance. Age-wise, they could be anywhere between a well-preserved 70 or a weathered 55. They don't seem to have any obvious mobility issues or to be in charge of any pets or children. But that doesn't matter. I'm already doomed as the younger party to grant them right of way. There also seems to be a slowly blinking light hovering around my opposite number's mouth. Perhaps it's some kind of safety device attached to their coat to aid rescuers in the event of them getting lost in the snow. But as they draw closer, I realise that my guess couldn't be more wrong. The blinking light is in fact a cigarette, the opposite of a safety light. My adversary is walking around the extremely narrow, snowbound sidewalks of Queens, New York, not only maskless, but expelling carcinogenic and possibly viral clouds. 
Should I punish them for this transgression by holding my ground? In the eyes of the algorithm, does their respiratory carelessness cancel out the fact that they are probably eligible for a free bus pass? No clear answer is forthcoming, and now my opponent is bearing down on me. The die is cast. I grimly wade into the snow, piled up between the sidewalk and the road. At this juncture, I should mention that I've recently taken to using a wheeled shopping bag for my trips to the supermarket. The kind that you pull behind you like a rolling carry-on suitcase. I'd be lying if I told you there wasn't a small part of me that hoped that this contraption might lead others to mistake me, hidden behind my mask, for a senior citizen. Then they would erroneously grant me right of way along the hazardous sidewalks. But people are seeing through my clever disguise, and now I have a big bag full of crisps and vegetables to lug out of their way along with my body. Back to the evening in question. I haul my wheeled shopping bag out of the way of my smoking rival and into the snow after me. The loose powder spills over the side of my waterproof shoes and dampens my special Japanese socks. The bottom six to eight inches of my shopping bag is immersed in the drift. I curse inwardly as I remember, carefully placing my loose heavy vegetables at the bottom of the bag so they wouldn't squash my crisps. I hate it when you open the packet and it's all crumbs. Now, the snow, laced with dog turds that will reveal themselves like so many sordid fossils as the drift melts over the next few days, is no doubt seeping through the canvas of my bag and contaminating the courgettes within. Given the sacrifices I have so plainly made, I expect my adversary to at least be gracious in victory. A glance of acknowledgement at the very least, maybe even a verbal thank you very much but they don't even look up to meet my beady eyes as they pass. I feel my blood boil, despite the sub-zero external temperature. I entertain an involuntary and vivid fantasy of running after my opponent and pushing them into the snow from behind. I thrill to the thought of the little hissing sound their cigarette would make as it is extinguished and buried in the freezing powder, followed extremely shortly afterwards by my target's unmasked face. Only the onset of mild hypothermia snaps me out of my waking dream. I drag my shopping cart out of the snow and trudge home. I slip twice more in a humiliating fashion before I reach my sanctuary. That was Henry Reese Sheridan, our New York correspondent. Andrew, you host The Urbanist. You spoke a little earlier about a show that you're planning um, about the past year. So I'm keen to hear your take on pavement politics, particularly as you've taken up running and therefore, I assume emerging from behind people that didn't know you were there breathing heavily on the pavement. (laughs) Well, it is strange running because obviously you head off on your own and you try and go down the quietest routes, but you you come across people. And I have learned to be incredibly careful because people, one, they don't hear you coming and so they, they kind of leap out of their skin if you get too near. And people are very scared, of course, because of COVID and they they don't want somebody huffing and puffing uh, behind them. So I try and give as wide a berth as possible. But some people, you you realise, are just very nervous. You could be like 200 metres away and they would still kind of leap out their skin because they, they don't like the sight of runners. So you do have to be careful. Luckily in London... At night, there are so few people around, and I run through the the commercial heart of the the capital, through the city of London, 
and there you just see absolutely nobody. So I, I tend to have those places to myself. So it's, it, but you do have to be very wary. There is a whole etiquette about running, and and especially when I go down towards the river, there I tend now to kind of not run along the actual river, but just like on the road, one back again, just because there are so many people, and you just don't know what people's reactions will be. And there are obviously exceptions. I think the social capital um, around making way for people is actually pretty high and people on the whole um, are fairly good. But Tom, I'm drawn back to a, a story which I love about you uh, emerging on a cold, uh, blustery evening from Walthamstow Station to have your, your glasses, your spectacles whipped off your face um, by a fast squall. And then this lovely image of you rummaging around, trying to find them blind to the world. I like to think someone stopped and helped you, did they? No, they absolutely didn't, Josh, which put me in mind of this. Uh, well, exactly. It's funny, actually, as Henry was reflecting on there. You know, when you walk along the street and you fall into this sort of weird lunatic pas de deux with somebody where, you know, you move right, they move to their left, you move left, they move to their right. And who moves first? And I, it really struck a chord with me what he was saying about, you know, what is the hierarchy um, from, you know, should you step aside? Is it actually socially beneficial to just blaze directly forward so that you don't fall into any of these oh no but after you or I don't know maybe that's a quintessentially English problem of politesse um, but yeah on that famous dark day nobody helped me uh, find my glasses Josh and it was so windy I had to hear my way to find them yes that's right rattling around on the pavement I used my keen sense of hearing to locate them so I did make it home safely in the end and it sounds like you might be walking down the street as we speak is someone whistling there in the background <laughs> there's, there's just merry merry neighborhood children uh wandering outside they're probably throwing eggs at my at my house Josh but they certainly sound like they're having fun out there they should be in bed they should be in bed at this time of night yeah, I was going to say at this at uh, this time of night um if they're making fun of you also this is good advice for heaven if they're making fun of you Tom they're not your friends <laughs> I'll just I'll just let that one sink in but sadly, that's all the time we have for today's late edition. A big and sincere thank you to Andrew Tuck in studio with me here. Tom Edwards joining us down the line. Thanks too to Louis Allen at Midori House, who edited today's programme, and to our producer in Milan, Ed Stocker. Thanks, Ed. The late edition returns on Monday next week. I'm Josh Fennett. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend. Music.